Alleluia, Christ is risen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, one God. Amen. Gracious and loving Father, we thank Thee and we praise Thee for this opportunity to grow in our knowledge of Thee, in our love of Thee, to grow in the knowledge of Thy Holy Word and the Catholic faith under the authority of that Word. Keep us ever mindful, O God, that what we receive we are to share. This we pray in the name of thy Son, Jesus Christ, our risen Lord, who liveth, liveth and reigneth with thee, and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Okay, please be seated. All right, so this is our, our last class. Um, um, please, no weeping and wailing. Uh, I do want to say... Um, Thank you to those who have been following us on Praveen, what's it called? The podcast. The podcasts. Um, when I think of pods, I think of the invasion of the body snatchers. But uh, anyway, <laughs> I hope that's not the case. Uh, in the podcasts, I've actually just received two more this week of people who have written me, one on Facebook and one on my regular email, just saying thank you so much that these have been helpful and and that really is a blessing to, to, um, to hear. Um, of course, I make all this stuff up at night, and none of it's true. But I'm glad that you're all following along. And, uh, and I hope you've come to realize in following these podcasts that I joke quite a bit. Last time we talked, uh, we're looking at the uh, other sacraments, or if one prefers, the five sacramental rites uh, of the church. And we talked about how in Anglicanism it's a full sacramental system uh, that all the traditional sacraments of the church are present within Anglicanism, um, but that there is a, distinct, uh, a, a, a distinction made in Anglicanism, a clear distinction between the, the two great sacraments or the two dominical sacraments of holy baptism and Holy Eucharist, and the five other sacraments or sacramental rites, confirmation or chrismation, absolution, anointing, ordination, and matrimony. We talked about how in the greater Catholic tradition, um, the early church tended to see all of life as sacramental. Because the living out of one's life in the church is a living out of one's life in Jesus Christ, who is incarnate. And of course, in, in, in the greatest sense, Jesus is the ultimate sacrament, isn't he? Uh, we define a sacrament as an outward and visible sign of an inward and spiritual grace assuredly given. Um, and in that, in that sense... We encounter the living God, uh, his presence, his life, his mercy, his goodness, his truth, his forgiveness, his healing in the incarnate Lord. Okay. So life was seen as sacramental. Um, the Orthodox tend, Eastern Orthodox tend to still want to hold on to that 
Life itself is sacramental. Uh, if pushed, the, they will talk about the seven great sacraments, but really they see all of life as sacramental. The Roman Catholic Church really does tend to talk about the seven sacraments and then other sacramentals. Um, and Anglicanism tends to talk about the two sacraments of the gospel or the two dominical, meaning of the Lord, two dominical sacraments uh, and the five other so-called sacraments or commonly called sacraments or lesser sacraments or sacramental rites in the church. But regardless of how you slice it, life is sacramental. Uh, there are seven sacraments. There are two sacraments and five other sacraments. No matter how you slice it, Anglicanism has received the full sacramental life of the early church. Okay. Last time we looked in particular at confirmation and chrismation. We talked about how in the early church, whether one coming to Christ as an adult or a child would be baptized into the, uh, the uh, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, be made a child of God by adoption and grace, and become an heir of the kingdom, receiving everything that is Christ's by nature, by adoption and grace, and that they were immediately uh, confirmed or chrismated, um, uh, and that this was the seal of the Holy Spirit. Uh, now, it's not so much a seal as, in, uh, as on an envelope, okay, right? Uh, more, if you remember the seal, all the seals that uh, George Constanza's fiance licked uh, and, and went to her death. Yes, uh, for Seinfeld fans out there. Uh, it's not that type of seal, as much as it is what we were talking about before the recording started, the bishop's ring. It's the seal. You have been marked with the seal of God, with the Holy Spirit. Okay, you have received his seal upon you, uh, nor is it ar, ar, ar type of seal, okay? So I just want to clarify that because I knew that some of you were wondering. Um, and so one would be immediately chrismated or confirmed by an apostle or by oil known as chrism, which is mixed with some balsam um, that has been consecrated by the bishop for the seal of the Holy Spirit. Those of you who were here on Sunday, January 7th, and, and saw uh, Connie be baptized, she was baptized into Christ at, I, I, well, maybe she doesn't want her age broadcast all over the world, so I, but in, in her young 30s, um, baptized into Christ, and then immediately she was sealed with the chrism that had been consecrated by our bishop, Bishop Harvey and sealed with the Holy Spirit and marked as Christ's own forever. And that then the, the person would receive Holy Communion because a baptism is birth into Christ, birth into Christ. If a child is born, the child must be nourished, nourished must be fed. And so immediately the child uh, or adult uh, would begin receiving Holy Communion to nourish, 
to strengthen that new life in Christ. Because remember, what happens? Why do we need to be strengthened once we're baptized? Well, remember, when Jesus was baptized, what was the first experience that he had? Attack by the enemy. And, and let, let's face it, vicious attack. Vicious attack for 40 days and 40 nights. A vicious attack. And so, uh, and, and, and how does he nourish himself during that time? By, although he is the word of God, he prayed and he fed himself on the word of God. And that's how he battled with the enemy, who also, by the way, knew the word of God very well. So, uh, so a good point to remember. So this was confirmation and chrismation, and we looked at um, Acts of the Apostles, chapter 19, 1 through 7, where Paul finds some disciples. He assumes that if they're disciples, that they're believers. He assumes if they're disciples and believers that they have been baptized. The one thing he doesn't assume is that they have yet received that apostolic gift of the Holy Spirit because an apostle has to give that. Um, And then they say, we have not even heard that there was a Holy Spirit. And then he's real confused, right? And says, into what then were you baptized? Because if you were baptized, you would certainly have to know the Holy Spirit. And they say John's baptism. And he explains that there's a difference between John's baptism, which although very powerful, is really more symbolic of, of repentance, of turning away from a, a former world and preparing for the coming of Christ and Christian baptism where Christ actually comes into you by the power of the Spirit. We also looked at Acts of the Apostles chapter 8 verses 12 to 22 where Philip the deacon, not Philip the Apostle, but Philip the deacon goes down to Samaria and preaches the word of God and many come to receive Christ and are baptized. And so he immediately calls for the apostles, Peter and John, I believe. It may have been James and John, but uh, anyone know? You said Peter and John last time. Did I? I may have been wrong then too. But two of the apostles, it probably was Peter and John, who come down from Jerusalem to lay their hands on them because they have received Christ in baptism. Okay, and of course we see in the Acts of the Apostles chapter 2 where the apostles are the one baptizing that they say when you're baptized you will immediately receive the Holy Spirit. And of course that those who were baptized in Acts of the Apostles chapter 2, I think it is around verse 37, it says that they uh, continued in the fellowship and doctrine of the apostles. So not their own doctrine, not what do I believe, okay, I hear so often about church being a get-together of like-minded Christians. And that's only true in secondary matters. Uh, In first matters of the faith, we don't make up our own faith in what we're comfortable with. There is a faith of the covenant, and we receive that faith, that apostolic faith, personally into our hearts, okay, to be shaped by that faith rather than to shape that faith into our image, okay? Um, They continued in the fellowship with the apostles, the doctrine of the apostles, and then, of course, it says the breaking of the bread, 
which is Luke's way of referring to Holy Communion, to be nourished in that. The breaking of the bread um, and uh, the prayers, which in Greek is the prayers. It literally is the liturgical prayers of, of the church. Um, we, we looked at um, Acts of the Apostles. Oh, here it is, uh, chapter 2. It's 37 to 42. We also looked at John 3, 1 to 6. Uh, unless uh, one is born of water and the Spirit, uh, they shall not see the kingdom of God. And the early church fathers tell us that being born again of water and the Spirit is to be born of both baptism, but the Holy Spirit as, as well. Of course, we must remember that our faith must be a living faith. It can't just be something of, of uh, yes, it's professed with the lips, as it says in Romans, but it's also believed in the heart. And when it's believed in the heart, it becomes a living faith that will bear fruit. Now, it's not the fruits that save us. It's that we have received what God is offering by faith. That is our salvation. Um, but there will be fruits of that living, that living faith, um, which are called good works. So they are the necessary fruits of a saving faith in Christ. It's not the works that save us. It is Christ who saves us by grace through faith. Okay? But uh, anyone can say, as St. James says, even the who uh, proclaim Jesus as Lord, even the demons, right? But it's not like they profess, we know who you are, son of God. Oh, well, another demon saved. <laughs> you know, that's not the case, okay? Uh, they know who he is, but it's not a saving faith because although they profess with their lips who he is, so well, their lips, right, because they're demons, right? Um, uh they uh, they certainly won't bear uh, forth fruit that are uh, the necessary fruits of a saving faith in Jesus Christ. We also see in uh, Titus three three to eight, Ephesians one thirteen, and Ephesians four thirty, where it talks about being sealed in the Spirit. So that's just a little recap of of last time. So before we move on to the uh, the next one, uh, you have confirmation, which again is a little bit difficult. I, I have to admit, um, and there's probably people that are smarter than I am who would be able to answer this fairly easily, but I, I'm a little bit troubled what role that has in uh, as far as being necessary for salvation like baptism, because Literally in the beginning, um, it was one, it was a threefold initiation rite. In other words, one, one was baptized into Christ, and then one was sealed with the Spirit and nourished with the body and blood of Jesus in their life in Christ, right? Um, so, what happens when confirmation gets separated from, from, from baptism. The only comfort I have is that the church has always taught that even if one has not been baptized, but is trusting in Christ uh, for their salvation and that they die before they have a chance to be baptized, that they are saved. 
that they are saved. Because remember, the Lord is, is A, looking to send people to hell because he gets kicks out of it, or B, not looking to send people to hell because he loves them. B, good answer. Good answer. Any, anyone here say A? You... <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's true. I, I, I wasn't trying to make that reference. There are Christians who believe that, not because he gets kicks out of it, but that there are some that he simply does not choose for, for well, yeah, okay, well, I, I guess that's a fair response. Yeah. Uh, I thank you, Lord, that you saved my wife and my two daughters, though I will spend uh, all eternity in hell. Yeah, but, okay, so anyway, uh, moving on from that theological debate of uh, predestination. Uh, we'll we'll move on uh, from that. Any any questions um, before we move on to confession and absolution uh, regarding baptism, chrismation, or confirmation as it's known in the West and Holy Communion? And I'm listening. I'm just going to go and back and take um, a sip of soda. Go ahead. Well, I think um, last time we were saying that when you're baptized, you're baptized into the Death and resurrection. Yes, it's it's Yeah. That spirit dwelling within you. It, yep. And it's a little bit tricky in that of course it's the Holy Spirit at work in your life that is leading you to baptism. It's the Holy Spirit who baptizes. It's the Holy Spirit that grants you the faith to open your heart to receive the gift of God's grace. But yet there is there does seem as we we saw last time a particular gift of the Holy Spirit through the, the apostolic community, through the apostles, um, which has continued in the life of the church, we believe, through the office of the bishop. Um, and there's that particular apostolic gift of the Spirit to strengthen you in that, in that new life. Um, and in a sense, um, some have said it's like a personal Pentecost in that... Yes, they were in Christ, but just as the church is the new Adam in Jesus, who is the new Adam, right? Um, just as the old Adam was created by God, he remained a lifeless being until he received the Spirit. So the church is, a, uh, is the new Adam created by Christ, but is in a sense a lifeless being until it receives the, the, the Spirit uh, of, of God and has God breathe that Spirit of life in, into them. And I think it's much easier when it's just simply connected to baptism. It's just one threefold right, boom, boom, boom. We get into some real tricky theological waters when they get separated, uh, separated out. And I think it, Karen, was you that pointed out that it's also seen, uh, in a sense, as a, uh, an apostolic succession for laity, uh, in that we continue to be in the fellowship of the apostles, 
uh, and of course hold the doctrine or teaching of the apostles as it says in Acts of the Apostles chapter 2, I think verse 42, somewhere in there, maybe 37, um, that we continue in the apostles' teaching or doctrine and fellowship. And in a sense, it's, it's through this chrismation oil that was been anointed by the bishop or through the laying on of hands of the bishop that each of us become part of that body that is in that apostolic succession uh, as well. So, yeah, which I thought was a good point. Did that answer? Yeah, that's great. Okay, okay. Thank you. Okay. Without getting into the whole issue of spiritual gifts, is there anything to the idea that um, until you're confirmed, whatever particular specific spiritual gift you have will be coming into completion at that point, or um, you're endowed in in some way at that point with uh, whatever, you may be, again, it might have been dormant before, but now can be realized because like Pentecost, yeah. started speaking in tongues. Yeah, I, you know, I'm going to say, um, you know, I, I don't really know. Uh, I, again, it becomes so tricky in the West because we've separated confirmation from baptism, which, which I perceive as an accident of history, not that there shouldn't be some type of renewal that can go on when people are older, but... Um, it becomes so tricky theologically. You know, uh, the Spirit blows where He wills, uh, but I would say that perhaps that uh, those gifts are confirmed or anointed anew or given new life or moved from being dormant to being quite alive uh, or are strengthened, um, something along those lines. Um, uh, uh, but also I think the Spirit is present at baptism as well and that the confirmation is a particular gift of the Spirit through the apostolic community to strengthen and seal that new life within you. I think Christians, and this is my opinion here, get into a lot of difficulty um, in dangerous waters when they try to pinpoint um, when the Spirit is given. You know, uh, because obviously it's the Spirit at work in one's heart drawing them to baptism in Christ. It's the Spirit who's present in baptism. No Spirit, no baptism. You know, just waters, you you know. Um, And so there's always, you know, oh, when is the Spirit given? Oh, well, it's given when you profess Jesus uh, with your lips. Oh, no, 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 it's given when you are baptized. No, 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 it's given in confirmation. You know, no, 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 it's, 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 it's given when you speak in tongues. All of these, while I'm not going to take time to identify, would represent different Christian positions of when the Spirit's given. My answer has tended to be yes to all of it, to all of it. Um, but I believe there is something special about the sacrament of confirmation or chrismation in that it's a connectedness uh, with the apostolic community and it's a particular gift of the Spirit um, through the apostles. 
And I'm not sure, and this is where I really go against Western tradition here, so I want to point that out because I, I try to be clear when I'm speaking for the church and when I'm uh, dabbling in um, uh, my own thoughts. Um, I'm not sure, unlike baptism, that it needs to be a one-time gift either. I think, uh, you know, perhaps... I mean, wouldn't it be great, although poor bishops, if they had to do this every time, but wouldn't it be great if every time the bishop came, because it's usually only once a year, except in our church, because he likes to see us, but um, <laughs> he likes to hang with us down here. Um, 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 you know, wouldn't it be great if every Christian came forward, knelt down, had the bishop lay his hands upon them, breathe upon them, we'd give them a mint breathe upon them um, and and anoint them with chrismation and, and pray for a stirring up, a powerful stirring up of the Holy Spirit within them. I mean, to me, yeah, that'd be cool. That's a good Greek way of referring to it. I think that's the ancient Greek is, is the word is cool. Yeah, and uh, you know, I, I, I really do. I think that would be, would be fantastic. You know, and uh, if that's just too many people for him, they could just, you know, archdeacons could be given that power. I'd offer him money for it. Yeah. No, I'm kidding. I'd be a, yeah, simony. Yeah, it's a joke also for those of you following by podcast. You know the thing, though, to, to kind of talk about what you just said about bishops laying hands. I remember Bishop Harvey saying that when he does that, he feels physically drained. Yeah. Absolutely. So, so, I mean, yeah. I do that every time. But, and it, would, it would be tough. And, and I think, um, one, he's getting a little bit older, too. But that's why at the end of those masses, when, you know, he says in some churches, you know, that are real big, you know, pictures can go on for an hour and a half. And he is white. He is white. Um, I often feel that way on, on Sundays after doing the, the Mass. And when I was in the Diocese of Connecticut before I was ordained, um, I was a, a full-time lay pastor in the Diocese of Connecticut. They actually broke, now I'm not saying that we should do this, but they broke up, I think it was, you, you, you work 14 units in a week. This was, you know, an attempt to keep clergy healthy and blah, blah. I've seen lots of plans. I've just never seen healthy clergy. Um, and 14 units. And a unit was a morning or an afternoon or an evening. Okay. And then a day would be considered three, three units. Okay. Um, and you were only supposed to work, except for extreme emergencies, 14 units in, in a week. Um, but Sunday, whether you did one Mass or three Masses, whether you visited the sick after or didn't visit the sick after, was considered in a full, a full day, so nine units. So when you went, it was considered a full day work. Um, and it was, uh, it was really an acknowledgement, believe it or not, in the Episcopal Church, of the spiritual drain upon the the priest celebrating the 
the holy mysteries, pronouncing absolution, perhaps anointing people and praying over them, um, having the word of God. You know, it, it's a strange analogy perhaps, but remember even Jesus, and this gets into some theological sticky waters, but who touched me? Right, which some of the early church fathers tell us, by the way, was St. Veronica, who, according to tradition, wiped his face, and it's, it's known as the icon without hands. Uh, that station up there, six, uh, station six, St. Veronica wipes the face of Jesus and it leaves the image of Jesus uh, on the veil. Um, they say it was her, but she, she touches him and he feels the, the right power go out from him. And, you, you know, and... Uh, drain from me. And yeah, and, and was tired. I'll, I'll tell you where, um, and I don't know if theologically this is true or not. Perhaps it should be the Eucharist, um, although I do that more. Um, but I will say that um, doing baptisms and doing confessions are, I find, the most spiritually draining. Like, Time to go home and have a beer and go to sleep, or <laughs> you know, um, I find the most spiritual, uh, spiritually draining. Where I often afterwards will need time to pray, and sadly, I don't follow this. Um, and just recently, I was thinking, man, maybe I should. But in the Didache, which was written somewhere between 90 A.D. and 120 A.D. Um, so very early on, you're talking at the end of the apostolic age, it actually says that the person to be baptized and the person baptizing are to fast for a few days beforehand, before entering into that. And this is a whole, this is a, an incredible topic. Um, it's one that I think the church doesn't look at enough or take um, seriously enough, you know. Um, the, in the Eastern Orthodox Church, people always laugh when I use this example, and I'm definitely not going to go to this extreme either, um, but they're trying to point to something. A, an Eastern Orthodox priest, if he's, if he's married, okay, cannot engage in sexual relations on the eve of celebrating the divine liturgies. The idea is to fast from all the pleasures of the world, and to begin to focus themselves spiritually. So they should be in prayer, they should be resting, they should be in God's Word, they should be doing the Jesus prayer, they should in preparation for offering the Divine Mass. In the Western Church, we have trouble with priests and, and deacons um, committing themselves, uh, um, and, and I often fail here because it's Grand Central Station sometimes, um, even saying prayers just getting vested. And here they are starting the night before. Why? Because it's no ordinary thing we're doing in the Divine Liturgy. And this is why a lot of married um, priests in the Eastern Orthodox Church don't celebrate the Divine Liturgy every day like in the West. <laughs> Wouldn't have any children. Both spiritual warfare, 
yeah, you know, spiritual warfare. To focus one's heart. Yeah. Um, the the one thing um, that I have always found most difficult is um, if, if someone comes in, right, and if any of you have ever done this, I don't remember. I promise that. And I'm not trying to whap you on the head. Um, uh, but is, you know, someone coming in right before Mass and, Father, can I talk to you? You know, and I, I'm really angry about something in the church, or I'm really mad at you, or you're, um, I just want you to know before you go and celebrate the divine mysteries, you're a bozo. You, you know, that is, but it, it, because of one's attentiveness. So I think it's both, spiritual warfare, which I think leads to being uh, attentive. I love in the Eastern liturgy, where even before the readings by lay people are done, the, the chanter sings, Wisdom, be attentive. It's like, pay attention, people. This is the word of God. You know, um, I know that in, in the church I grew up in, uh, which was a Roman Catholic church, if people came in late, they, they had to go into the crying room, um, which was basically just the foyer, but it had speakers, you know, they had to remain in there and the ushers couldn't let them in until after the gospel proclamation. And then there was like a 30-second period before the priest would start the sermon for those people to come in and grab a seat. But the idea was we did not want to be distracted during the proclamation of the word because the proclamation of the word also makes Christ present in a unique way as he is in the sacrament when the word is proclaimed within the ecclesia, the assembly, and the fellowship, the koinonia of the church. Yeah, so it's, um, um, I, I, I tell you, um, since we started daily mass, which is probably a couple of years now, um, I think the spiritual warfare in this church has more than doubled, more than doubled since we started daily mass uh, in, in the church. Um, um, you know, there are times I, I think where, where the enemy, the, I've said this before, the biggest uh, offer, deal that he tries to make with clergy is I'll leave you alone, I'll leave your family alone, I'll leave your church family alone. You don't have to quit, just tone it down. Take it down a notch, right? Chill out, <laughs> right? Chill out. Now, that doesn't mean you shouldn't be wise with your time and, and, and what you do. You have to be careful, uh, you know, what ministries you do and, and so forth. And, you know, they, they can be in, important, you know, these, uh, you know. But you have to, um, but mostly he says, just chill out. Let people just kind of show up to church, give them a feel-good sermon, give them Holy Communion and send them home after a donut. But chill out. Yeah. Anyone else? Okay. So we're going to now look um, at, at absolution. Um, this is another place where um, I'm going to get emails, I think, from a lot of my low church friends here. Uh, this is another one I have difficulty. One, for one of the reasons that... Um, the two sacraments of baptism and Holy Communion are distinguished 
is because they're referred to often as dominical sacraments. That is, sacraments that were clearly instituted by the Lord. Okay? There are two dominical sacraments, where the other five are seen as sacraments under the guidance of the Holy Spirit that emerged within the life of the church from the beginning. Well, the only problem I have with that is, at least when I read the early church fathers, it seems like absolution was also instituted by the Lord. And so um, that, you know, that's, that's an issue. But let's look, grab a Bible, if you didn't bring one. Um, if you brought one, unzipper it. Yeah. And, uh, and go to Matthew 16, verse 13. Matthew 16, verse 13. By the way, just one more note on spiritual warfare. Someone put out something the other day. I'm not a C.S. Lewis scholar. I don't know if this is true or not. Um, but it was on Facebook, so it must be true. Um, and, uh, and, and what they said was that... And C.S. Lewis was not particularly a high churchman. Okay? Um, but according to what was printed out, it said, if you want to have your feet basically firmly grounded... Okay, it's not that you can't do more than this, but if you, what's the bare minimum that you want to do uh, in your Christian life regarding spiritual attack, um, enabling spiritual growth, etc., etc.? And the answer, according to C.S. Lewis, according to what I saw printed, was pray the office every day, morning and evening prayer. Pray the office. Even when it's boring, pray. Do it out of discipline. Secondly, uh, and I don't know what the order was, receive Holy Communion at least once a week on the Lord's Day, uh, if not more frequently, but receive Holy Communion. And then the one that surprised me, um, which ties right into what we're about to look at, um, frequent confession frequent confession and receive absolution. And that these three things, not that other things should not be done, that these three things will keep you grounded uh, in your walk with the Lord. So we look at Matthew 16, beginning at verse 13. Now when Jesus, and what does the name of Jesus mean? God saves. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do men say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. And others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Now, in one sense, 
The answer is in the question, isn't it? I am. Which is the way God identified himself to Moses when Moses asked, uh, whom should I say has sent me? Okay. Who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ. That is, Christ is Greek for the anointed one of God. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. Bar-Jonah means son of John. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. That means no man has revealed this to you. But my Father who is in heaven. So the Father had placed this in Peter's heart to confess Jesus as the Christ and the Son of the living God. And I tell you, you are Peter, which means rock. And on this rock I will build my church. So there's a clear reference here to Jesus and his intent for a church that is being built. And the powers of hell often is the translation uh, here in what I'm reading, RSV, it's death, and some it's Hades. The Greek word there is Hades. So basically, Um, the powers of death, Hades, shall not prevail against it. Now, we don't have time to get into the debate here um, whether or not, uh, what is the rock upon which the church will be built? Some of the fathers said, well, it's upon uh, Peter's profession of Jesus, his profession of Jesus as the Christ, the Son of the living God. Some said, no, it is on Peter who is speaking here for whom? The apostolic community. And there are, there's another place where it says the church is built upon the foundation of the prophets and the apostles. So it's the apostolic community, which would imply the apostolic faith. Some say, uh, no, it's, it's Peter uh, himself. And of course, that's the claim made by, by Rome. The early church fathers, um, some of them said all of these. Uh, most said that it was the profession that Peter put forth. St. Augustine, um, a father as great as St. Augustine, changed his mind on it, thought that it was Peter in particular, and then said that he wasn't really sure that it was Peter in particular and says that, you know, it may be indeed, you know, truly be the statement that he makes, or the apostolic community represented by Peter. Um, So moving on from that now. I will build my church, and the powers of death shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Why is heaven a gated community anyway? Is anyone? That's from Jim Gaffigan, if you're ever watching him. Anyway, um, what's that mean, I will give you the keys? Well, basically, if you have the keys, you decide, in a sense, 
who goes in and who doesn't go in, right? So that's a pretty big statement that to the apostolic community and subsequently to the church, right, um, one, you know, uh, is given the keys of the kingdom. This is, by the way, why whenever jokes are told that someone died and went to heaven, it's always Peter who's at the gate. Okay, that's where that comes from. Okay. Um, And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. This is the authority of God being given to men, to the church. Only God can forgive sins. But what he is saying, of course, remember Jesus in many places, I'll give you an example, when Saul is persecuting the church, Jesus, the risen Lord, appears to him and says, Saul, why are you persecuting me, right? Uh, So it is Jesus who is manifesting his authority as Lord and God to forgive to his church, to the apostolic community. All of ministry whether, and I particularly here ordained ministry, but I think this extends to all ministry, must be seen here as in light of reconciliation. So yes, as a priest, I can celebrate the holy mystery of the Lord's body and blood with all of you. I can celebrate, I can preside at that celebration. But here is the lens through which I must understand that special ministry entrusted unworthily, by the way, to me by the grace of God, that it is about reconciling people to the Father, which is really living out simply the the person in ministry of Jesus, of Jesus. The person in ministry of Jesus and authority of Jesus has been given to the church to reconcile the fallen world to the Father. To the Father. This is the lens through which it must be understood. Okay. Um, but also to bind sins, the church has the authority to say that something is not of God. Okay. Uh, and that, um, and also to say that a person. Uh, is not ready to be forgiven. Now, what would be an example uh, of, of that? An unrepentant. Someone who has hardened their heart, hardened their heart to God and his love and forgiveness. Unfortunately, what we're talking about here today is very deep in Many in the church don't understand that. And this is why you get either this God of vengeance on the one hand, right? This God who doesn't like a lot of people, and some churches preach that God. Or you have the, you know, what I call the Winnie the Pooh Jesus, right? You, you, you know, 
just, you know, come in and have some honey. It's all good, right? It's all good. And what he is saying here is, look, there, 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 it is detrimental to your soul to harden your heart against the love and mercy and forgiveness and goodness and truth and wonder. Did I say beauty yet? And beauty of God offered the world in Jesus Christ. God is offering you forgiveness and love and mercy and healing. But amen, but you can refuse it if you harden your heart to it. If you harden your heart to it. Um, So what is released on earth is released in heaven. Um, An an example would be, let's say a, um, a man comes to confession and he confesses a grave sin against his own person, who he is in the Lord, of course against the Lord, because in one sense all sin is really against the Lord, but against his wife and family and so forth and so on. And the priest says, you know, okay, so are you truly sorry for this? And he says, no. He's enjoying the sin. He, he's, now, he's there, so the Spirit is trying to lead him to repentance, right? He's there, but his heart is hardened. He doesn't really truly say, you know, look, I'm, I'm not sorry. Are you going to continue in this sin? Yes, I, I plan to continue. Now, you can fall a thousand times, right? You know how many days I have been on a diet in the beginning of the day and failed at the end of the day? My intention at the beginning of the day was to complete the day, right? Now, you can fail five million times if your heart is really trying, right? But this, let's say this person says... Nope, I refuse to repent, or I refuse to submit to the authority. Or I know that's what the Word of God says, but I disagree with it. Right? They've hardened their heart. You know, people will say, well, that's what the Bible says, but the Bible was written by men. But they don't realize in that statement, what are they saying? My little bit of reasoning that the Bible is just written by men, is more rational than the witness of the church for the last two to 5,000 years, depending how far back you want to go in God's revelation of himself within salvation history. It's a pretty big statement. It's a pretty big statement. It takes a lot of what? Gumption, yeah, but ego, that I, I am much more, let's just pick one. I am, mu- I am much brighter in, in having studied this much or even that much than Gregory of Nyssa, who received it as the word of God, let alone the witness of the church in every age. Right? Um, and so it's it's... You know, they can harden their heart. 
So then the bishop or priest has the authority to say, I call you to repentance. If they refuse to do so, usually it's been after three times, uh, they then say, these are now the consequences. We recognize you as having hardened your heart and cut yourself off knowingly from Christ. Therefore, you're held bound in your sin. Now, ultimately, judgment belongs to whom? God, right? And God may know that that priest is abusing their power. They, he may know something about that person's heart that the priest doesn't. Though I, I believe there's a lot of grace given and insight that I know in confessions that haven't come from me. Not all the time, but you, I, you, you're able to say, well, I know that's not me, right? So that's the Holy Spirit, right? Ultimately, judgment belongs to the Lord, but if that person goes away, intending to embrace their sin and desire of the flesh and to not embrace the forgiveness and healing uh, and truth of the Lord revealed in his word, if they die, it's, let's say it this way, it's not looking good for them, <laughs> okay? Um, it's what uh, the Bible refers to as the unforgivable sin. That is going to one's death, refusing forgiveness. That's why it's unforgivable. Not because God doesn't desire to forgive you, but because you have refused his forgiveness. But ultimately, even holding someone bound, what's that meant to do? To punish them? Yes, no, it's not meant to punish. It's actually meant to make them realize the severity of what they have done. It's actually meant to bring them to sobriety, spiritual sobriety in what they have done. And actually to, so that they will come back to the Lord. You're making a pronouncement with authority that they have cut themselves off from Christ and from his church and his sacraments. And so it's meant to bring them back to sobriety. Brother Michael, when you said they cut themselves off from the sacraments, yeah. does that mean that in a situation like that you would actually withhold the sacraments from them? Yeah. Um, if I know someone is in, uh, if I've heard through the grapevine that someone is in grievous sin, right? Um, and they come up that day to receive communion. I won't refuse them there, okay? Although, 1 Corinthians chapter 11 says that this is actually dangerous for their soul, but perhaps they repented during the Mass. I don't know, right? But then I am to go to them or ask them to come to me, right? And call them to repent from whatever it is, Right? Uh, and if they refuse to repent, then yes, then you, after so much, you say, I've done all that I can to try to get you to repent, um, but your heart is hardened. And so now if you come, you will be refused at the rail. Yeah. Now in this day and age, what do they usually do? Just go to another church. Right, But, you know, if we were, or stop going, but if we were to take this stuff very seriously, going to another church doesn't solve the problem, does it? Because your heart has still been hardened. 
and you're really compounding that, that sin. So does that reduce then the power and effectiveness of the Eucharist? Of the, of the it's to their detriment that they begin to receive it. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. It's to their detriment. That's why people are saying, it is so unloving to say who can receive and who can't receive. It's really out of love that we do that. That's why every week in the bulletin it says, you, you, you know, who? And, uh, you, you know, and basically it says you have to be a Christian and have asked God to forgive and to approach the sacrament in faith, believing it to be what Jesus said it, it is, the gift of his own self. Mary. It's actually a fallacy. Um, you can be, let's say that you, well, no, we don't want you divorced, even if you were Roman Catholic. So let's say Joe and Jane here in the front row, who are fictitious characters, for those of you who can't see, are Roman Catholic. And they, and they get divorced. Um, and let's just assume, to make it easy, that neither of them is having an affair without repentance. They got divorced just because, I don't know, they're stubborn and he wouldn't put the toilet seat down and she wouldn't, I don't know, take cooking lessons, right? And they get fed up with each other and bang, they, they leave, right? They get, they get divorced. Um, they, they actually um, can still come and receive communion. The problem is if they um, try to remarry uh, without the permission of, of the church, without the permission of the church. Well, remarry another person besides that person, right? Um, without the permission of, of the church. And there would be, basically, I'm simplifying here, but there's, there's, there's three biblical reasons why they might say that, um, like, let's start with the norm that when you're married, it's forever, right? Let's start with that norm. Now we'll say that from the early church, um, from the canons even of the 5th century, there were certain times when, when that could be. Um, one was adultery without repentance. So let's say Joe was having an affair. Joe wouldn't repent. Um, I step in as the priest and say, Joe, you need to knock it off. And, and Joe refuses and hardens his heart. Um, then, you know, Jane at some point can be released by the authority of the church to bind and to loose what we were just talking about. Um, she can be released to remarry. Another would be abandonment by an unbeliever. And I, I um, have a good friend that this happened to, actually. Um, they were married. She um, started going to church with no intention. She was basically an atheist, agnostic at, at best. Um, you know, if it was a good day, she was agnostic. On a bad day, she was atheist, okay? So anyway, this woman went to church because someone in her family said, I'd like you to come once. And, you know, so she went. Eventually, she gave her life to Jesus. And the husband who actually was a baptized Christian, but an inactive, you know, a, basically a, non, a non-believer. But technically, when she actually was not baptized, she comes and says, hey, good news, I'm getting baptized. 
And he says, I don't want that in this relationship. I don't want any of this religious stuff. I don't want this Jesus stuff. Okay? And um, he was actually baptized in the Roman Catholic Church. But he was like, no. So she, anyway, continued and then said, hey, I'm going to be uh, baptized. And he said, it's Jesus or me. And um, she said, I got bad news for you. It's Jesus. And um, uh, they ended up separating, tried to reconcile at one point. He still refused because she had given her heart to Jesus and they got divorced. Um, And so uh, many would say that that's uh, another reason where she is no longer bound because she was abandoned by a non-believer. Another, and this gets a little sticky, uh, but I would argue is that a bishop having the authority to bind and loose can, let's say that um, Joe here gets married when he's, you know, a young man. And yeah, let's say he was a Christian, but you know, loosely. Um, and he does have an affair, refuses to repent, says, I wasn't really into that church stuff anyway. Jane goes off, she marries another because she's free, right? Um, Now, 20 years later, let's say, 25 years later, he's older, he's mature, and he really comes to a saving faith and trust in Jesus Christ and has repented of that. He can't remarry Jane because Jane has been off and remarried for a long time, right? Uh, And he comes and he meets at Bible study, um, Give me another name. Beulah. Beulah. And Beulah is this wonderful, loving Christian, has a heart for Jesus. I, I believe, many would agree with me, but many would disagree with me, that a bishop under those circumstances with the advice and counsel of his priest working with Joe and Beulah can say, Joe, you blew it. Your, your first marriage was meant to be forever with Jane. You blew it 20, 25 years ago. You are now forgiven and are released. And now you're free to marry Beulah. Why would he marry someone named Beulah, Deacon Susie? Oh, beautiful Beulah. Be beautiful Beulah who has a bold faith for the book. And uh, so anyway, um, so yeah. And so I I would argue that under those circumstances, the bishop has the authority to say, you know what, you have a second chance. Many would disagree with me, however, uh, on on that. So releasing initially would have been a one-way thing. Jane is released. She has, yeah, she has clear biblical grounds, right? I mean, she wanted to reconcile. Joe did not. He he refused uh, to uh, stop the affair. He, you, you know, et cetera, et cetera. She's released, free to remarry. There are there are many Christians who would argue that that that, that there's no even biblical grounds. That's it. She should just live as a as a uh, uh, single person for the rest of her life. And uh, um, I'm not there. Um, I I think that there are grounds. There were other grounds in the ancient church that were seen as a living out of the principles and ideas. So, for example, 
um, you, you can't be related, right? You can't marry your sister or your first cousin, right? Um, identity fraud. So you didn't enter into the covenant with correct knowledge. So, you know, someone was pretending to be someone they weren't. Turns out they were already uh, married. Um, coercion. So, you know, you were kind of forced. You know, what they call shotgun weddings, right? Isn't that, doesn't mean really quick. It means someone is holding a shotgun. Is that, is that what? Yeah, shotgun wedding, right. You're going to marry my daughter, right? Um, and uh, um, so if you're coerced. Also, extreme mental illness. If the person that you're marrying and you did not know this is incapable of entering into the covenant because of, men, of mental illness, they're not able to enter into the, the covenant. And Oh, you're smart. You think you're off now, huh? You, you just got let off from the marriage? You're, Don't you know he's crazy? He's crazy? Oh, Mary, yeah, oh, okay. To divorce her. Yeah. And, and, you know, and it gets tricky. It's, was it crazy in the sense that they could not enter into the covenant of marriage? Or is it that they developed a mental illness? Then that's for sickness or health. So it, it and, and he didn't know it when he married her? I would have been more merciful to Jane Eyre. And then she never would have, see, it never would have happened. See? We should really air this thing out. Anyway. Um,